Let's just pray together. Father, now we come to your word. Now your spirit meets us here in a way that will illuminate the text and pierce us, encourage us, rebuke us, uphold us, inspire us, teach us, show us your ways. God, let us now bow our hearts, not just in prayer and in singing, but in the holy exercise of listening to and receiving and then obeying your holy word. God, fill us up to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. We've been walking through Luke here recently at the church. Luke chapter 11. And I think it's entirely appropriate as uh, we are following up the week after the great eclipse that we come to a text that uses the context, the concepts of light and darkness, right? Funny story about the eclipse. I knew it was going to be a special day Monday as I woke up in the morning and I put my breakfast in the toaster and the waffle popped up as to fully block the pastry. And there was nothing I could do. It was a total eclipse of the tart. <laughs> I told that joke to my brother, and he said, that's so bad, it's good. I said, wait till you hear the sermon. <laughs> we will be in Luke 11, thinking on the concepts of light and darkness. We're going to begin reading in verse 33. It's just Luke writing what Jesus is teaching here. Luke 11, 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I read this and I thought about how William Shakespeare was famous for using the concepts of light and dark to contrast different features in his works. Uh, you may remember maybe in high school uh, you read through Macbeth and that iconic Scottish general had to face and deal with the death of his wife. And he said these famous words. He said, out, out, brief candle, comparing her death to a candle being uh, taken away. And then you can just hear his despair as he goes on in his grief. And he says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's just a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So darkness to Shakespeare also signified a life that was full of no purpose. Also, you might remember in the classic Romeo and Juliet, this uh, amazing scene where Romeo comes to the tomb of his uh, dead lover, and he, he opens it up, 
And his words when he sees her dead body is, is this a grave? Oh no, a lantern, slaughtered youth. For here lies Juliet, and her beauty makes this vault a feasting present, full of light. So there's the idea that light symbolizes beauty, even in the midst of darkness. Now I remember this, uh, not too long ago I went with uh, uh, my children to Washington with the public schools, and we went to Arlington National Cemetery. I remember walking there uh, on a gloomy, uh, misty day, and just walking around Arlington, you'll know if you've been there, there are thousands upon thousands of white, very ordered tombstones. And as I was walking through there, I just felt somber and dark because of the pervasiveness of death and the frailty of light. And I was just feeling it, man. And then I walk, and then I come across the hillside that holds the gravesite of John F. Kennedy. And there, amidst all the graves, is a single eternal flame, always burning, always an enduring torch to light the way, to contrast between light and darkness. And that's the picture I want you to hold with you as we read through this text together. An enduring torch. We're going to come back to that image. That's a flame that doesn't go out, that burns and burns and burns and actually begins to consume the darkness. Because in today's text, we see Jesus speaking about Brightness and dullness, light and dark. And as we read through it, I want you to know Jesus is aggressively throwing the gauntlet down at your feet. As if to say, you have a choice here. Darkness or light. You can be a damp tomb or you can be an enduring torch. Let's read through the text here together. First point I want to make here, you can find in verse 33 is that an enduring torch shines light to others. An enduring torch will shine light to others. Read verse 33 again here. As Christ says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but instead on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. So here Jesus is comparing his message, which is the light, His message is, the kingdom of God is here. We know that because the king himself has arrived. If the king is here, the kingdom has come in. That's his message. We call it the gospel, the good news. It's good news that the king is here today. And that's the message Jesus has. And he says, when you have that, the gospel is like a lamp that will guide or enlighten us to be able to behold something, to be able to behold the beauty of God in Jesus. So that we will glorify him and celebrate and turn away from the darkness that is sin and Satan. But listen carefully in the text. You don't turn on a lamp to throw a Home Depot's bucket on it, do you? No. You turn on a lamp to shine. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy. I'm going to try to emulate him here. You ever see the guy who walks around and he's got his iPhone Flashlight on, he's like, hey, he's talking to you. But his, his flashlight is on, so it's like, Ning, out of his pocket. That guy's not me at all, ever. But we laugh at that dude. Why? Because flashlights aren't mean to go in pockets. It's not what they're made for. Flashlights are to light up the room. That's what Jesus says about the gospel, about his message of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. 
It's meant to be a light that is shine. By its nature, it will shine to other people. And look there, you can see it in the end of verse 33. The gospel, the light of the gospel is put on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. It's meant for everybody in the room. It's meant to be shared with the gospel as, uh, to other people as good news. The famous missionary and theologian named Leslie Newbegin. And one time he wrote this quote. He said, the power of the gospel as liberating truth, as release from illusion and alienation, as light out of the darkness and confusion, is only known when people are receiving it as news. It has to land on them as news. And it wasn't just a few years ago in our North American Christian culture that many of us were duped into thinking that all the gospel was was what we said right before conversion, right? It was useful to be printed on a track. That's what the gospel was for, right? Years ago, we were taught that. Since then, in the past 20 years, there's been a revelation, a revolution that's been very helpful for the church. And that is, the gospel is much more than that. It's meant to touch and impact every aspect of my life. My depression, my finances, my children, my parenting, my marriage, my health, what I eat. Everything is touched by the rule of Christ and the gospel. We call this applying the gospel to all of our lives. So it's been a huge revelation in our church. We love that, and it's right and good. But I think when this transformation occurred in our Christian culture, we lost something. We lost sight of the fact that the gospel isn't just a self-help type of story. The gospel is other help. The gospel is meant to be sprayed out and shine out like a light. Owning the gospel in our everyday is huge, but we also have to own the responsibility and the joy that Jesus says comes with having the light. We must shine it forth. To treasure Christ is to spread him. And I want to encourage you because we're doing that corporately. I want to take a few seconds here and uh, show you some pictures of the trip that Christina talked about because it's a great example of how as a church, we are shining light. And we're doing it through the team that we sent from here to be in Turkey. We all can't live in Turkey, right? But in order to shine the light in a place where the gospel's not, we've sent some people permanently and then we go temporarily to encourage them and be with them. There's a team that we sent. You can see us there at the airport. Where do we go? Turkey, Central Asia. Think on your Bible map. Uh, think Tarsus, if you know your Bible. That's where Paul uh, hung out, was from. That's where we went here. Who do we go see? That's Kendra Houston there, and her husband, Kenny, is on the right. Uh, there are the kids. Felena is there. Hudson, look at his hair. Notice his hair because it's really shaggy. Uh, funny story, when we got there, he had this shaggy long hair, and, and he said, how, how is your son? How are your kids? Because he liked uh, my kids. He's friends with my kids. So I showed him pictures of my kids, and one of my sons, Sammy, has a mohawk right now, sticking up crazy. And Hudson sees that. He looks at it, goes to his dad, and he's like, Psh. next day, Hudson shows up, mohawk. But this was pre-mohawk. Pre this, is, this is what we're spreading in Turkey, by the way. Hairdo. There's Samara, the oldest. There's Naomi. All the kids were there. Here's a little glimpse. It's an urban center where we're working there. Uh, so it's not unlike here at TCC 
lots of building, lots of moss. One difference is they're right on the ocean. We're two hours from the ocean. They're right on the ocean there. It's beautiful. It's the Mediterranean Sea. So we're able to see them there. Um, and next, let's see. Okay, here's something we did. Uh, we were able to go and be with them in their Turkish church. They have started a church among a people that do not have the gospel. It's very small. It's very house churchish. But we were able to go and be with them. That's me speaking. I don't, it's a video, but I don't think the video is playing. But you can see there in dimly lit room, kind of uh, really laid back, uh, almost undercover type of setting. We are there worshiping with them. There's the preacher preaching his sermon in Turkish there. But we also gathered with the Houstons and had a retreat, a time where our team sat around the Bible and we taught the missionaries so that they could spread the gospel correctly. There we are interacting with some of the Turkish nationals, the Kurdish folks. Uh, a lot of our time there, as Christina said, was spent just being with the people, trying to be a light individually, eating with them, hanging out with them, uh, lots of fellowship, and we were there as your arms encouraging the Houstons. Uh, a great time there. Something else we did here, interesting in this picture, we engaged their culture. I'm showing you this barber picture. That's Matt, our team member at the barber, because Kenny recently told me that he chose his barber on whether or not the guy would let him speak the gospel. So think about that. Think about how you choose whether you're going to Food Lion or Lowe's or where you're going to get your hair done. Kenny chose his. He had a great hairdresser that was closer to his house. And he ended up ditching that guy because when he went in here, the guy would never want to talk about the gospel. So he switched to this guy, and I thought it was neat. There, Matt, uh, uh, yeah, he's saying yay because he just got done having a uh, fine Muslim man with a knife to his throat. But he's fine. <laughs> we were also able to give them some supplies from our church, so they're uh, including blue candy. So she's got blue candy. A lot of our time was spent just hanging out with the kids, bouncing the kids on our knees, having a good time with them, encouraging them, being Jesus to them, so that, again, even the children in that context are asked to go out and spread the light of Jesus Christ. Uh, so a lot of, uh, this is a good funny story here. Uh, we, we were able to take them to some cool things, give them a vacation, as Christina said. We found a, uh, a snow, indoor snow place in the middle of the desert. And so that is Kendra throwing snowballs at her husband. It's a really cool pic. She hit him. That's why she's jumping up and down there. Um, but they loved it. They loved being encouraged by you guys through us. It was a great trip. Uh, fast forward to the end there. Uh, the last two pictures, if you would, if you can. There you go. Uh, this is the garden, beautiful olive garden and grapes growing there. What I wanted to show is that one way that corporate evangelism works is that we are the roots here. We can't all go to Turkey, but you serve as the roots. The Houstons serve as the vines where the fruit grows, right? There's an interconnectivity in what you're doing here. You're giving, you're praying, you're social media with them, you're texting them, whatever. All of that serves to support the fruit that's being uh, right there. They have people now gathered as a church and it's going so well they're considering moving on to another location to gather more people as a church. So be encouraged by our trip to Turkey. It taught me a lot of things. It taught me specifically how uh, corporately we are being a light. But this text also reminds us, it urges us, it pushes us to be light here as individuals as we each shine our own individual lamp. Uh, let's keep moving on here. 
Um, second point I want to make here. The first point is an enduring tor torch shines light to others. Second point. Note here in the text how an enduring torch provokes shade from others. It's going to provoke some shade from others. And you've experienced this probably. Skip on down. Jesus is going to talk some. We're going to go back to what he talks about. But skip on down to the end of the passage, verse 53, because you need to know the reaction. If you choose to be a torch that endures, you're going to catch some shade from others. Verse 53. As Jesus went away from the conversation, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him and to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Notice the verbs here as applied to the scribes and Pharisees. They began to what to him? They pressed him. They provoked him. They lied in wait for him. They wanted to catch him. Your commitment to loving God and being a light in issues of affections for Jesus explicitly or being an arm of justice as he's going to talk about in the text, your commitment to being that type of light may not get you a lot of likes or subscribers. It's not going to win you a popularity contest in our culture. Speaking of the Eclipse Monday, anybody who went and was involved in all that madness, you saw that if you were able to go out and view the Eclipse, you had to have some kind of a barrier between you and the brightness, right? You either had the weird, small, crooked glasses, or you built that funky box, or that little pinhole cardboard thing, and went outside and my poor little neighbor was over there, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? And she's staring down at the cardboard pinhole thing. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh. Julie went over there and gave her some glasses. Come on, where are the glasses? It only happens once. And, but if you were in there, you saw that there had to be a barrier, a level of distance and safety between your retina and the eclipse that was going on. And that's going to be the reaction that you will see from the scribes and the Pharisees here in this text and from people in your life. Why is that? Well, because the brighter that Christ shines, the more exposed his haters are going to become, right? The brighter he shines, the more it exposes the evil in others. Sometimes the best way to hide in the shadows is to turn out all the lights, right? I play hide-and-go-seek with my kids in the house, and there's some cool places to hide, but if you turn out all the lights at night, Lots of places to hide, right? That's what's going on here. People will try to snuff out your light aggressively in order to hide in the shadows of their own darkness and evil. That's what they did to Jesus. Christ was willing to die penniless and painfully in order to pursue his love for the Father, in order to pursue justice that he talks about in the text coming up. It was only fitting for Jesus, after pursuing a whole lifetime of righteousness, to die the type of death that would show off God, show off God's mercy, show off God's justice. When Christ went to the cross, he showed off the justice of God because there were people who deserved sin. And God punished that sin. He just punished it in Jesus. So justice was upheld. But there were also people who needed rescue. All of us who trusted Jesus need to be rescued from our own sin, from Satan and hell. And so Jesus showed off perfectly the love of God by sweeping up all of God's children into God's family. 
but they killed him for it. And you need to know that. You're following someone who was murdered for being a light. But the glory of Jesus is that even through his death, his torch endured. He was forced into his own dark tomb, but he did not stay in the cellar. Instead, he rose again, proving that all of us who will follow him won't stay dead. We too will rise with him. Paul says that in Romans 6. He says, if we were saved into a life, if we died with Jesus, then we also participate in a resurrection like his. And that's going to be our hope when the hard times come. Our answer is not to shrink our light. It's to shine it brighter, knowing that our light will endure beyond the darkness, beyond the grave, as Christ's light endured as well. Jesus didn't didn't say you should fear people around you. He didn't say fear the darkness. He said you should not fear people. You should fear the one who can actually take your body and your soul and put it in hell. You should fear God and shine your light even still into the darkness. Today's text, though, isn't just a warning text or an evangelism text. There's more here. Look in verse 34. Jesus continues and said, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So he's going to extend the metaphor of light here. Since your eye is the organ of perception, because it sees It's crucial in what you take in. It determines how you perceive the world. And as you take things in, that's going to uh, determine what comes out of you. As one author wrote uh, this week uh, in something I read, he said, if the eye brings in light, then the whole body's going to glow. There's this idea that if we immerse ourselves so much in the light of Christ, We will have a spiritual incandescence about us. A spiritual glow, if you would, that will have some distinct marks. And now he's going to go on in the text and give us some conversations, some conversational highlights that Jesus had with some people. And he gives us those to show you the marks of an enduring torch. So I want to look at a couple of those, right? Here's our third point. So he's going to uh, highlight some conversations of Christ to illustrate what it means to be an enduring torch. And this is the third point. An enduring torch ignites godly giving. That's from verses 37 through 41. An enduring torch will ignite godly giving. So the author changed course, and he goes more into a narrative here. While Jesus was speaking, verse 37... Jesus is teaching about the light, and while he's speaking, a Pharisee, a religious leader, asked Jesus to dine with him. So Jesus went in, and he dined with him, and he reclined at the table, and get this, verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Don't show this to your eight-year-old, right? But the Pharisee saying, hey, Jesus didn't wash before dinner. What's up with that? Why would a Pharisee care so much about that? Well, 
cultural pause here. In this culture, you not only wash to get the dirt off, but a lot of your washing was symbolic. There's an Old Testament practice uh, that wasn't necessarily prescribed, but people did it. In order to symbolize ritual purity, you would wash the bowls, you would wash the hands, you would wash maybe your face, you would wash all over. And here Jesus is sitting down and he's not bothering with all of this ritual washing. And the Pharisees shocked. He's saying, hey, what's up with that? Why don't you wash? Look what Jesus said, verse 39. I love it. He's going to turn it right on its head. Verse 39. The Lord said to the Pharisees, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the outside of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? I don't get lost in the language there. Don't miss Jesus' point. His point is you can impress people with your pomp and your proprieties and still be a dark tomb on the inside that reeks of death heart that rejects Christ is going to be full of darkness and wickedness. What does a soul, however, that burns as an enduring torch for Christ, what does that look like? You can see it in verse 41. So he's going to contrast the darkness of the Pharisees, the greed, the wickedness, with what an enduring torch for God looks like. Verse 41. But Instead of that, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, when you have the light burning within, you're going to want to give freely from that. You'll freely drain your bank account for the sake of others because you have the light in you, and your innermost coffers are already filled with the greatest treasure anyway, which is Jesus Christ. You'll be willing to give in a godly way in order to shine the gospel. What is godly giving in the Bible? Well, specifically here, Jesus mentions a funny little word called alms. We don't use that much anymore, alms. It sounds kind of medieval. What's he mean by that? Well, in the Jewish customs, uh, money was given within the community of faith, just like we have a community of faith here. They had a community of faith there, and money was given, uh, and it was given to specific designated officers within the group, and those people would determine how they would give that money to the poor. So when he mentions uh, alms, he's talking about giving that special way to the community of faith in a sacrificial way. Later in Luke, there'll be another giving text, Luke 21. In that text, Jesus is going to praise the widow. If you remember that story, widow came. She's outside the temple. It's a little bit different uh, type of offering that she's given to besides alms, but the point is the same. She makes a great sacrifice, and Jesus is blown away by the sacrifice. He says, ah, that's the sacrifice you need to be making. So a huge part of godly giving is sacrificial giving. If you want it to help, it's going to have to hurt to give to the glory to shine the light of God. Sacrificial giving here. But almsgiving is also, as I mentioned, not just sacrificial, but is communal. By that I mean that Jesus here is advocating a system where you, in submission to God, actually give up ultimate control of the destination of your money. Right? And that's really scary to some of us. That's really a way that a lot of us Christians like to sneak in 
some control in our lives. But listen to this quote from Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn said, Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It dethrones me and it exalts God. So let me warn you here from the text against the type of giving that some of us uh, sometimes practice. So if you're already in the habit of giving, Jesus is also further instructing you to give in a certain way. Some of us tend to give like this. We say, hey, all right, I got some money. I want to give it away. Let's see. Who's my favorite friend from college who's now on the mission field? He's with crew. I'm going to write that letter. I'm going to give to him. Um, I love this charity because my grandma passed away, and now they're doing work to research that disease. So I'm going to give there. And we set ourselves up as the ultimate philanthropers. Instead, what Jesus said, there's a type of submission you need to learn in giving alms. Alms was giving not just willy-nilly wherever you wanted. Almsgiving was to the community of faith. And then the community of faith would elect officers and then they would decide what to do with the money here. You can see the distinction. One type of giving, you're in ultimate control and you're like, I got my money, but it's like Yosemite Sam on top of a pile of gold, right? Mine, 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 right? I'm going to control exactly where it goes. That's up to me. I control everything. There's another type of giving that says the bride is the closest representation to Jesus here on earth. Jesus left one thing here besides the spirit. He left the bride, the church, and I'm going to come together with the church and I'm going to pursue almsgiving through the church. And in doing that, it's scary, right? Because you get to vote in why the church spends its money, but ultimately the, the vote might go in a different direction. That's scary, but that's also a sign of submission to God and his purpose. Jesus, Peter, Paul, all throughout the New Testament, they are suggesting a system of giving where you're giving to the community of faith. A heart that's burning as an enduring torch will gladly cooperate with other torches in order to give to fulfill the gospel purposes in the kingdom of God. So we've seen here in the text, being an enduring torch for God shines to others. It won't gain you popularity. It's going to result in godly giving. And there's one other crucial point here. An enduring torch, number four, radiates love and justice. Verses 42 through 52. 42 through 52. An enduring torch radiates love and justice. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue in every herb, and you neglect what? You neglect justice and the love of God, right? Jesus said, these you ought to have done. Meaning, you ought to be tithing. And by the way, he mentioned the different type of giving here, right? Tithing's a little bit different than almsgiving in the Jewish system. And I think we can imply from that, it's okay to give to a lot of different purposes. I'm not against you sending money to your missionary friend from college. I'm not against that. I'm just saying a big part of your giving should be giving to the local church. Jesus is saying, giving's good, but then he goes deeper here and says, some of you guys are giving, but you're neglecting the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the justice and love of God. Verse 43, he says this three times here. The words, woe to you. He's not whining 
sometimes we hear the word woe, we're like, woe is me. That's what we think of. No, he's saying woe to you. Woe to you. There's condemnation coming, says Jesus, for people who neglect justice and the love of God. Woe to you, verse 33, you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They're noticed in the marketplace, and you love it. Verse 44, woe to you. Destruction is coming. For you are like what? What are they like? You're like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without even knowing it. So a sure sign that you've got an empty tomb in your soul is to turn your back on justice in our society and the love of God. Maybe you score real well on external matters. But Jesus here shoots for the heart. You fail the ultimate test of what's most important to God. Justice and the love of God. Christ is going to draw your attention here in the text, particularly to the urge to love affirmation from others. Maybe you strive for leadership positions and high status. There's nothing wrong with high status or leadership. But what he's aiming at is the motive. Are you aiming for that in order to gain the praise, the adulation of other people? If you are, Jesus says, woe to you. Destruction is coming. God desires you to pursue his praise rather than a glory grab for yourself. And that's not all. If you noticed in verse 44, look again. Here's something that Christ affirmed. Christ affirmed that no sin in your life, especially these sins of greediness and wickedness and self-centeredness, none of this fails to touch the people around you. Did you see the image he gave there? He gave the image of an unmarked grave. In that culture, you may not have this as much here unless you go to a really old cemetery, but in that culture, an unmarked grave meant there was a pit that wasn't marked where they were going to bury someone, and if it was unmarked, someone might walk right into it and fall, right? So he's saying your wickedness, your greediness is like a pit others in your life are going to fall into. In other words, you might be leading your children right into a dark, dank tomb if you, in fact, are neglecting the love of God and God's justice. It's a rephrasing of a text that we have earlier here from Luke 10. Famous text. Jesus affirmed the secret to living forever the secret to eternal life by saying, hey, the secret to eternal life is to love your Lord, your God with what? With all your heart, your soul, right? your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love of God and justice together, the same message that goes throughout the New Testament. What does it mean? What does it mean to love God, and what does it mean to neglect such a love? But we're helped here if you've ever read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, some of us have been studying that here at church together. It's a wonderful book. The author is writing the book of Hebrews to a bunch of uh, church folks, uh, but they're mostly Jewish. And they begin to love the structures of their old Jewish life, 
better than they love God. And so the author of Hebrews gives them very practical advice that would help you here today. It's helped me. Here it is. The author says, very profoundly, the author says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. What do you mean by that? The author meant Jesus is way better than angels, than Moses, than all the sacrifices that you love about the Old Testament. He said that to the Jewish Christian. To us, he might say it differently. He might say, you can love Jesus or you can love money, but you can't do both. You can only serve one master. He might say, you can rest in your own comfort and your own ease, never take any risk, or you can rest in the obedience of Jesus Christ. You can love attaining praise for yourself, or you can enjoy garnering praise for the Lord who created you. You see, at the very depths of you, you've always got a choice of affections. Uh, it's like a razor's edge where there's no gray area. You're prone to worship something, right? And the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. He's better than all of those things. Treasure Jesus. That's what it means to love God. Constantly be picking him over other things. Ask yourself at the root of your affections, what are you really wanting? We were at the marriage seminar, and Sean said it really well, talking about our marriages. What's the one thing that you think would really make your marriage shine? If he would just do this, I would be rosy. If she would just wake up and become this, I would be great. What is that one thing? That one thing is probably a sphere around your idol that you're tempted to love more than God himself. We are to fight against such idolatry and seek to attain our pleasure in Jesus Christ, to refocus our affections. Author Melissa Kruger talked about her tendency to love her relationships more than God himself. And here's what she wrote. She wrote, When we seek for another person to fill the relational void that can only be satisfied in Christ, Every relationship we encounter will be lacking in some way. Our spouses can never love us enough. Our friendships will be marred by insecurity. And our children will suffer from the pressure of our relational demands. Fear of losing relationships leads to anxiety and worry. Despair at what we may never have leads to bitter and anger. In Christ alone can our relational needs be fulfilled. No other person can make this promise from Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you or forsake you. Man, you're down because your spouse is not giving you the attention that you should get. Only Christ can make the promise. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. It's much better. All other relationships suffer from the finite nature of the participants. Only an eternal God can promise and deliver, promise that nothing will separate us from his love. Indeed, by growing in our affections for Jesus, all the other relationships we treasure are not lessened, but they're actually increased because Jesus is better. Those are the affections that Jesus is calling you towards 
as you shine as an enduring torch for all the world to see. And what does it mean to neglect justice? That's what it means to love God. What does it mean to neglect justice and to pursue it rightly? Well, there's one more conversation that comes up here in the passage. Verse 45. As Jesus is talking here, a scribe, a scribe is someone who interprets the Jewish law, a religious lawyer. The lawyer pops up, right? So they're talking, verse 45, a lawyer answers Jesus and says, wait a minute, teacher, when you say these things to the Pharisees, you're also insulting us. And so Jesus said, well, you know what? Woe to you lawyers, right? You're going to be destroyed too. For here's what you do. You load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's not neighbor love. That's creating injustice for others. Jesus said that'll destroy you. Verse 47. Woe to you. More more tomb talk. More death. More darkness talk. I hope you catch it. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Skip on down to verse 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may charge, be charged against you in this generation. What's he doing with all this prophet talk and tomb talk? Well, he's saying your Jewish fathers came and they snuffed out the light of the prophets. And that same heart is within you. You're wanting to put the light into the tomb. The light of God in Jesus Christ. You want to snuff me out. You've got the same heart within you. And your hearts will be judged. Why? Because in your hearts you fail to love God and pursue justice. I spoke earlier about going to the eternal flame at Arlington National Cemetery. Somewhat ironically, tragically, just uh, almost to the day, two years before John F. Kennedy was assassinated, he stood near his eventual gravesite at the Tomb of the Unknowns, and he gave a speech. It was Armistice Day, and this is the speech he gave, just a few phrases from it. JFK said this, It's a tragic fact that man's capacity to devise new ways of killing his fellow man has far outstripped his capacity to live in peace with his fellow man. And it's not a secret that in today's culture, we're faced with racial violence, rioting, vigilante cop killing. That's here. That's what we're living in today. Ample opportunities at this buffet of injustice. Right? Pick your injustice and fight against it. But as you're doing so, think about this. Last week I threw a party. Uh, My son plays on a basketball team. Uh, And my son uh, had an end-of-the-year party, and I was hosting it here. I thought if I host it, I get to share the gospel, right? So I hosted it, and uh, he's the only white kid on the team. Every other kid on the basketball team is black. And so I gathered everybody together, and we had pizza. We ate. We made friends. We had pizza, and I spoke the gospel very briefly, and though some people affirmed it as I was speaking it, nobody mentioned it later as we were talking. Gospel didn't come up. Uh, But you know what did come up? Two separate parents came up to me 
and said, hey, I just want to thank you for throwing this party because in these times, somebody needs to be getting black folks and white folks together. Not my words, that's what they said. And I was touched by that. I really was. Because we need two things, right? We need statements, strong statements. Like uh, this week, a bunch of Christian scholars got together, led by Mark Hall, and they put out a great letter to all the world from Christians about racism. And in part of that letter, they said, we must recoil, as people of Christ, we must recoil against all structures that perpetuate white cultural dominance and racial injustice. We must have statements that condemn the alt-right fascist movements. We must stand here. We must say that to our neighbors. We condemn racism. But before you battle the embedded structures, you also need to take the step of loving friendship towards the victims of these structures. If they're the group that's being victimized, we must, as Christ followers, step towards these people. The hard fact about perspective is that it changes once you have a relationship. God will mold the way you look at the world when you actually have a relationship with a victim. Racial harmony that's going to lead to societal justice, it's not going to be achieved by merely posting cool phrases on your social media. That's good. But we must also go and cross some lines, stick out a hand, and make friendships where we can shine the light of justice. And this type of justice is at the heart of the gospel. Consider this. I read this quote. It's from Greg Forster. I read it this week. He writes, the gospel isn't only a message of forgiveness, but it's also a message of restoration to righteousness. God forgives our injustice in order to restore us to justice. He saves us not only because he loves us, but also because he hates sin and he will not allow his beautiful world to forever remain under the influence of evil. This is why our restoration to right standing with God is called justification. It's not called righteousnessification or goodnessification. It's called justification. The scriptural term invokes justice. God declares us just in Christ. Since scripture doesn't use justice in a narrow way, it can describe us being accounted righteous in God's sight and being declared just. That's the gospel. And if God declares us just in Christ, we are just indeed. Get the picture. If God declares you just, then you are just indeed. Then you will become people who do justice. We will keep the promises. We'll pay the debts and we'll give generously and we'll treat all with respect and do all we can to bring into the present a foretaste of the reign of justice to come. In summary, the death of Christ restores you to be a person of justice. And that's the call. That's the heart of being an enduring torch of the light of Christ for all in your world to see. You've got a choice today, the rest of this week. Am I going to be a dark tomb? Or am I going to live out the gospel within me as an enduring torch to others? Let's pray.
Father, I do pray. I pray that you come. I pray that your light that you've shown in your people, let that light that you have shown now not flicker out, not become dim, not be washed away by the hurricanes that are threatening the sores of our soul. Instead, let our light shine. Let it shine to all those in our neighborhood, to our family. Let us be people that love you deeply. We're choosing you over ease. We're choosing you over comfort. We're choosing Jesus over loving our money. And we're choosing justice. And we're pursuing it. Not only structures, but also intimately in our relationship. God, I pray that you give us that grace and more. In Jesus' name. Amen.